Mr. Jason Foster, a tired ancient who on this particular Mardi Gras evening will leave the earth. But before departing, he has some things to do, some services to perform, some debts to pay, and some justice to mete out. This is New Orleans, Mardi Gras time. It is also the Twilight Zone. So begins one of the most famous episodes of The Twilight Zone titled The Masks. It centers around Jason Foster, an old man who is near death. His family has traveled from Boston to visit him one last time. And it happens to be during Mardi Gras. And as there is much celebration in the streets of New Orleans, there is much celebration in Jason Foster's home. Oh, it should be a time of sadness because Jason is on his deathbed. But his family, his daughter and her husband and their two children have gathered around him because they're waiting for him to die so they can get their inheritance. They're celebrating his death in their hearts even as people celebrate Mardi Gras in the streets. Jason's family cares nothing about having a relationship with their father and grandfather. They just want his money. And Mr. Jason Foster knows this. So he calls them out and exposes their greed, but they deny it. So Jason finally tells them that if they want his money, they have to play by his rules for the evening. They have to wear masks until midnight. Jason tells them that a Mardi Gras custom is to wear masks that are the exact opposite of a person's true personality. So he says sarcastically that these masks are just that. And he offers the mask of a sniveling coward to his daughter Emily. A buffoon mask to grandson Wilfred Jr. And a self-obsessed narcissist mask to granddaughter Paula Jason himself dons a skull mask, claiming that the opposite of life is death. And when his family complains of having to stay inside and wear the masks, Jason says this, You all came here for one purpose, to watch me go and cry bon voyage, to put coins on my closed eyes, and with your free hands, start grabbing things from my shelves. You came to reap everything I've sown, to collect everything I've built. Well, I shall not disappoint you. Everything is yours. Everything is prepared. The will is made. The four of you inherit everything I own. Everything. Money, house, property holdings, stocks, bonds, everything. But I must include this addendum, this small proviso. You shall wear your masks until midnight. If any one of you should take them off from my estate, you shall each receive train fare back to Boston, and that's it. And now, my dear ones, we will await until midnight. As the hours tick by, all four family members beg to be allowed to take off the masks, claiming that they are worse than uncomfortable. They are unbearable, and yet their pleas are wasted on Jason who delivers his final tirade to his family as he dies. He explains that even without your masks, your caricatures. And then he dies. And the foursome rejoices in the fact that they are now rich until they remove their disguises and find, to their horror, 
that their faces have conformed to the hideous shapes of the masks. Their faces turned into the masks that they were wearing. And when Jason's mask is removed, it appears as if nothing has changed. His face is actually the expression of death itself, calm, peaceful, and serene. Rod Serling's closing monologue follows. The dramatist personae, being four people who came to celebrate and in a sense let themselves go. This they did with a vengeance. They now wear the faces of all that was inside them and they'll wear them for the rest of their lives. Said lives now to be spent in shadow. Tonight's tale of men, the macabre and masks on the twilight zone. This episode of The Twilight Zone is actually very instructive for human beings. Because how many human beings go through life trying to please God, using him like a genie or some Santa Claus in order to get things, and not ever wanting a relationship with him? These people, people who never come to grips with their sin and rebellion, will spend eternity in hell, wearing masks, if you will, wearing the faces of all that was inside them. And they'll wear them for the rest of their lives and for eternity, said lives that will be spent in shadow and fire and darkness, all the while suffering under the wrath of a holy God. But this episode of the Twilight Zone is very instructive even for believers, for disciples, for children of God. Because how many Christians live like what they do determines their eternal inheritance? How many Christians think that they can earn God's favor, earn his love by wearing the masks of so-called good works, Bible reading, prayer, service, all the while trying to earn God's love through their performance. How many Christians tend to lose sight of the glories of salvation when they suffer trials? How many of us lose our joy when things get tough? Well, if we're honest, we all do. And Peter's audience struggled with this too. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived the life that God's law requires of you. And he died the death that God's law says that you and I deserve because of our sin. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus' performance for you is what guarantees your eternal inheritance. The good news of the gospel is that the eternal son of God secured the inheritance of all of God's adopted sons and daughters. And that should cause us to rejoice. Even when we undergo all kinds of trials, even when we suffer for our faith, when we suffer Because we're Christians. And that's exactly what Peter's audience was facing. So Peter is just telling us in verses 3 through 9 of chapter 1 that what happened in our past when God saved us from sin and the promise of what is to come in the future should stir our hearts in the present. Peter's just saying that because of Jesus, you can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 
And I'm just stealing Peter's words from verse 8 for our big idea today. Listen, Grace. Because God had mercy on you in the past, if you're a Christian, then Christian, that means that you can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Because God is sustaining you by his grace in the present, even though you may be suffering and undergoing various trials, you can still rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And because you will obtain your future eternal inheritance, then Christian, you can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory because of Jesus. Look at verse 3 and hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter knows that mercy makes sinners sing. He knows that understanding God's mercy that is extended to unworthy sinners can actually catapult those sinners into rejoicing with a joy that is inexpressible. Peter, of all people, knows what mercy is and how it makes messy sinners sing, which is why he does it here when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter knows firsthand The mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy is you not getting what you deserve. And what do we all deserve? Every single one of us? Well, because we are sinners and rebels, we deserve to be the recipients of the full force of God's wrath and anger for eternity. That's the bad news that must precede the good news of the gospel. The bad news is that we were born sinners. All of us, every single person here. Because Adam, the first human being, sinned, then we inherited his DNA, and therefore, by nature, we are sinners, and we deserve to be punished. Because we have all chosen 10 million things over God. We have delighted in and taken pleasure in 10 million things over Jesus. So we deserve death. We deserve to be crucified. We deserve to be put in an electric chair. We deserve to be beheaded. We deserve to be stuck in a coffin. We deserve to be placed in a hearse and driven to a cemetery. We deserve to be in the grave to be put six feet under. And we deserve to be resurrected where we will stand before a holy God and be judged for our sin. And then we deserve to be cast into hell, into everlasting darkness, into the everlasting fire where we should spend eternity being punished for our sins and our rebellions against God. 
We deserve to be punished for eternity for saying, no thank you to God, I love all these other things. That's what we all deserve, every single one of us. But Jesus, in his great mercy, comes along and says, over my dead body, over my dead body and now over my resurrected body, I will not let that happen to you. That's the gospel. When Jesus says, over my dead body, I will not let your body experience this eternal fate. That's the gospel, Grace. That's mercy. That's you and I not getting what we deserve. And it's all due to God's great mercy. As Peter says in verse 3, according to his great mercy, God the Father caused us to be born again. So what Peter is saying when he says that is that we really were dead in sin before we trusted in Christ. We were born in a graveyard. Oh, you may have been born in a hospital and they put that cute little white hat that has blue and pink stripes on it. But the reality is that we were all born spiritually dead. Born in a coffin, born in a graveyard, born in a cemetery. We were all born spiritually dead. Therefore, we are the living dead. We are the walking dead. Every single one of us was born a spiritual zombie. Dead in our trespasses and sin. Very much alive physically, yes. But spiritually, we were born dead. And in his great mercy, God the Father caused us to be born again. We were minding our own business, living in rebellion against him, choosing 10 million things over Jesus, 10 million things to delight in more than Jesus, living like a zombie, living in the cemetery, walking around very much alive physically, but walking around very much dead spiritually, very much like a spiritual zombie. And then God the Father made us alive according to his great mercy. The theological word for this is regeneration. We heard the gospel message and the Holy Spirit made us alive so that we could repent and trust in Jesus. That's regeneration. So regeneration, being made alive by the Spirit of God, proceeds and comes before our faith in Jesus that's what we believe here at Grace, that God makes you alive and then you repent and turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. As we saw last week, the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, rolls up his sleeves and gets his hands dirty when he saves us. So God goes to the cemetery and he starts digging and he digs six feet down and he reaches your coffin and he lifts the lid and he pulls you out and he makes you alive. And then you repent and turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. That's what it means to be born again. We are born again because of God the Father. We are born into his family and become his adopted children because of his great mercy. And just as we didn't choose our parents, 
And just as we didn't make the decision, we didn't choose to be born into this world, so too we didn't choose to be reborn. We didn't cause our natural birth and we didn't cause our spiritual birth. That means that we can't take credit for anything. And we don't like that because we want to take some credit in this salvation business. Yeah, God did some of it, but I did something. No, Peter's saying, God, the Father caused us to be born again. And when you understand that you did nothing, that you were dead in your sins, that you were a rebel hating God, that you were walking around like a spiritual zombie wanting nothing to do with God, when you begin to understand that he came to you and he made you alive, and then you repented and trusted in Jesus, when you begin to understand that you did nothing, it was just his mercy saying, I'm not gonna give that person what they deserve. When you understand that, it will cause you to worship Listen, Grace, because of Jesus, you can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, indescribable, hard to put into words. We struggle with English, Spanish, French, German, whatever. You just can't get it into words how great God is in saving us. You can rejoice with that kind of joy because of Jesus. And you can rejoice with joy that is also, Peter says, filled with glory. Surely Peter has the Hebrew word in mind here when he uses it here in Greek. He's, I think he has in mind the Hebrew word kavod, which means in Hebrew, it's the Hebrew word for glory. It means weight or, or heaviness. Kind of like in the 70s when somebody would say something profound, what would people say? Whoa, man, that's heavy. That's what Peter's saying here. You can rejoice with the joy that's hard to put into words with a joy that contains the weightiness and the depth and the heaviness of the gospel, that it's so good, such good news. And when you understand the great mercy that God has poured out on you when you were a rebel, it should cause you to praise him. As Edmund Clowney says, praise is the goal of God's gracious work. God raised you so that you would praise him. He raised you from the dead spiritually so that you would praise him and worship him and delight in him and say, you're my treasure above everything in this world. Even you're better than the twilight zone. That's what I have to say. I don't know what you struggle with, but that's my struggle. You're better than the twilight zone. I want to watch the twilight zone. I don't want to read the Bible. Jesus, you're better. Jesus, you're better. You fill in the blank there. Can you say he's better than everything in this world? He raised you from the dead spiritually so that you would praise him. And he raised you from the dead and he gave you the hope of salvation precisely because Jesus came out of the grave. God made you alive. He pulled you out of the spiritual grave. He caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And our regeneration, our being born again, being made alive again, is not some abstract idea that's attached here to resurrection. We are born again to a living hope, but we are born again to a living person. Jesus is our living hope. Because he came out of the coffin, because he came out of the grave, because he came back from the dead, because he was resurrected, then we have hope because we have been united to him by faith. And that's good news, because if it were up to us, 
we'd never make it. We'd never get our eternal inheritance. We'd be like those people on the twilight zone. We'd mess it up. But Jesus secured our eternal inheritance. So we don't have to wear masks to try to earn our future inheritance of being with Jesus on the new earth where he will give us new glorified bodies that never get sick and never sin. We don't have to work to try to earn that. We don't have to wear masks and try to earn God's favor. We don't have to wear masks and try to earn his blessing because Jesus has secured all of that for us. There's no way, Christian, that you will ever be written out of God's will. There's no last minute surprising, no reading of the will, and you're like, what? I didn't get anything? No one is cutting us out of the will. So there's no need to try and manipulate God to get your inheritance. It's already yours because of his son, Jesus. Understand this, Grace. God's will his desire, his plan, is to keep you in his will, his last will and testament, if you will, in spite of your iron will. You can try all you want, exert all the energy in the world, have never-ending willpower, but that will not get you into heaven. That will not secure your inheritance. Jesus has already done that for you, Christian. You are in his will, Christian. You will get your inheritance because of Jesus, because it's God's will to keep you in his will in spite of your iron will. That's what Peter's saying. Look at verses three through five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now notice how Peter describes our future inheritance here. He says it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Ed Clowney is very helpful here. He says, because our inheritance is in heaven, nothing on earth can alter or destroy it. Peter must use negative terms to describe it. Because its reality surpasses our present comprehension. Our inheritance is not simply a land, a city, or even a new earth. It is all that God will give us. His salvation. Peter has to use negative terms to describe our future inheritance because we can't really grasp how wonderful it is. We just can't comprehend all that God has for us. We simply can't even begin to understand what it will be like to be face to face for Jesus. We have no category in our brains to really comprehend what heaven will be like on the new earth with Jesus face to face. So we rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and indescribable with a joy that can't be put into words because we don't have the right words in any language. We're at a loss for words. And so is Peter. He can't even really describe what our inheritance will be like. Peter has to use negative words to describe our inheritance because no positive words will do the job. 
all that Peter can say is this, it's unperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven for us. I'm at a loss for words. Me, the boastful disciple who always talks, always runs his mouth in the gospels, always has an opinion, always has to put my foot in my mouth because I open it so much, I, I, just, I just don't even know what to say. For once, I am at a loss for words. All I can tell you is that our inheritance is secure, that we will never get written out of the will. We don't have to wear masks to try and manipulate God. Everything is secure. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven for us because of Jesus. That's all Peter can say. And as Peter says in verse 5, God is ready to reveal our salvation, ready to reveal our inheritance at the last day. It's like God is chomping at the bit, and he's like, I can't wait to show my children what I have for them. I can't wait for them to see me face to face, to experience my glory, to truly and finally forever have a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. God can't wait to show it to us. And it's a good thing that God is patient because he doesn't get impatient. He's been waiting forever to do this. Waiting and waiting and waiting for the day when he makes things new and he reveals our inheritance to us. He can't wait to reveal the full scope of salvation to his children. God can't wait to do what Paul says he's going to do for all of eternity. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, it's by grace through faith that we are saved so that no one should boast. And why are we saved by grace? Paul says, so that, in Ephesians 2, 7, so that in the coming ages, plural, wrap your mind around that, you can't. The coming ages, he might show the immeasurable. You can't measure it. You just can't even begin to comprehend the riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is ready to reveal the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He just can't wait to show us how good he is. You think he's good now? You have no idea. You need a glorified brain to even begin to scratch the surface to comprehend how good God is to you, how in grace and kindness he's saving you through Jesus Christ because you can't understand it now because you don't know how sinful you are. You think you're sinful, but your sin actually keeps you from understanding just how sinful you are. You understand that, don't you? We, we, we know we're sinners. We talk about it here at Grace all the time, but our sin actually keeps us from coming to grips with the depth and the reality of just how sinful we are and just how holy God is. And so, it's gonna take us getting into heaven to be able to comprehend like, whoa, that's heavy. I really was a sinner. And my goodness, you really were a holy God and you saved me, and for ages you want to shower me with the riches of kindness in Christ Jesus? It's heavy, man. He can't wait to show us how good he is, and he can't wait to show us so much that he has designed it that only he can keep us secure until that day. Only he can keep us and sustain us to the end because we're sinful. We would screw it up if we could, but we can't because God is guarding us. He's protecting us. He's sustaining us. We are, as Peter says, guarded by his power. 
not our performance. We are guarded by the power of God, not our good works, not our good deeds, not our performance. But how many Christians believe that they can keep themselves in God's good graces through their behavior? So many Christians are like those people on the twilight zone. They try by their power, their actions, their manipulation to try and keep their inheritance that's supposed to be coming to them. No, God's power keeps and guards us. He keeps us from being written out of his will. Because we would try to secure it for ourselves. He's the one that keeps us. Because even after we become his children, after we are adopted into his family, we do tons, we do thousands, we do millions of things that should cause God to cut us out of his will and to keep us from enjoying his inheritance forever. We do millions of things even after we become Christians that should cause us to be written out of God's will like some family members do. You crossed me, so I'm crossing your name out of the inheritance. You're not in the will anymore, son. We do so many things against God all the time that should cause him to say, you're done. You get nothing. But God graciously guards us through faith, as Peter says, as we continue to believe that we are his, as we continue to believe that we will only make it because of Jesus See, by grace, through faith, we continue to believe all that Jesus has done. Therefore, because of Jesus, you can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, hard to put into words, and filled with glory, filled with the weightiness, filled with the heaviness of the gospel, the heaviness of that truth that God saves sinners like you and me. Now, why? Why can we rejoice this way? Because you did nothing to get yourself written into God's will. And you can do nothing to get written out of his will. It's all because of Jesus. So we can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible because of what Jesus has done for us in the past. But we can also rejoice with joy that is inexpressible because of what God is doing in our present circumstances. Even when our present circumstances are overwhelming. Look at verse six. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. What do we rejoice in? We rejoice in our salvation that is very secure because of Jesus. In fact, the Greek here could be translated as in him you rejoice. Not just in this you rejoice, in him you rejoice. We just don't rejoice in this abstract idea of salvation. We rejoice in a person. We rejoice in the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity. We rejoice in Jesus. And we can even rejoice in Jesus when life seems overwhelming. And even right now, as were some of Peter's audience, some of you and some of us, are going through some very difficult, hard situations. Peter paints with, with a broad stroke here. Our trials are various, by which he means multicolored. There's so many. There's all kinds of trials that we will suffer in this life. Sickness and cancer and loss of jobs and loss of loved ones. And we will also suffer because we're Christians, because this world will hate us. 
So there are thousands of ways that we suffer in this life, in this broken world. And they grieve us. They hurt. The pain is real. So when I say, and when Peter says that we can rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, we are not denying the pain of these various trials. We're not denying the pain and the hurt and the sorrow and the grief and the tears and the questions, why God, why? And the agony and the late nights and the lack of sleep and the loss of appetite and the stress and the anger. All of that is what Peter means when he says that we are grieved by various trials. Peter's not denying any of this. He's not saying that we should wear masks and be fake and walk around and act like we have it all together. He's not saying that we should be plastic. No, Peter knows what it is, what it means to be grieved by various multicolored trials. But even in the middle of grieving, in the middle of being grieved by various trials where you feel like you simply can't go on, where you just want to die. And haven't you been there before? I have. I just want to die, God. It's too hard. Just take me to be with Jesus. I'm done here. I'm done. You may not think I'm done, but I'm done. Take me, Lord. I don't want to be here anymore. Have you been there? That's what it means to be grieved by various trials, even in the midst of that where you just want to die. I can't go on. I can't go on another day. Peter would say, deep, 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 deep down, we can still rejoice while we go through these things. Now, why? Because Peter knows that our faith in God's goodness will be tested. That it must be tested. And that we must go through the fire. And then in the end it will resound to God's glory. Look at verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter wants his audience to know that their trials will not last forever. That there is a day when it will end. That there's a day when God will finally reveal what he has been waiting for eternity to reveal to his children. Peter wants his audience not to be startled by the various trials that they suffer in the present. He doesn't want them to doubt God's faithfulness as if somehow God were punishing him. Punishing them. And doesn't it sometimes feel like that? When you go through trial after trial and wave after wave of suffering, our natural tendency is to doubt God, to doubt his goodness, to question his love, to question his sovereignty, to get angry with him. Peter doesn't want that for his readers. He wants them to understand that they can rejoice in trials in the present time because it purifies our faith. Peter wants them to know that God sends trials so that our faith and trust in him would be strengthened. Peter wants them to know that trials actually burn away our self-confidence so that we would run to Jesus. This is why P Peter says, if necessary, you're going through these trials. They're necessary in the sense that they strengthen our faith, that we need them. See, God may be taking you through something right now that you are so overwhelmed, you don't think you can make it, but in his grace and his love, he's having you go through it now because he knows what's coming 10 years from now. 
And if he let you be for 10 years and run around and then boom, drop the trial that's waiting 10 years ahead of you, if he just dropped that on you without preparing you, that wouldn't be loving, would it? He may be taking you through something right now so that you'll be prepared for what's coming in the future. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, so that you can learn and grow and be comforted by God so that you can then take that comfort and help others that are suffering. So it's necessary in the sense that it may be preparing us for future trials. Understand this, Grace. Trials burn away our tendency to trust in ourselves. Trials burn away our tendency to trust in us. And who did this more than Peter? Peter knew what he was talking about. Peter was always trusting in his own strength, his own thoughts. This should happen this way, Jesus. Don't talk like that. You're not going to go to the cross. Always trusting in his own strength, his own ideas, his own wisdom. And God was always sending trials to burn away Peter's self-confidence so that Peter would run to Jesus. Trials come so that we run to Jesus, so that we know him more. So in that sense, trials become a blessing because they drive us straight into the arms of Jesus. Trials are meant to drive you to a person so that you run to Jesus. What's going on in your life right now is happening so that you would run to Jesus and say, you're my only hope, I need you, I need you, I need you. So trials can be a blessing because they become the door through which we run to Jesus And frankly, our running to Jesus stinks too. I think trials become a door so that Jesus can kick it down and come to us because we can't even make it to him. We're so weak. Trials come so that Jesus comes to you and helps you. Trials come so that a person comes directly to you, the eternal son of God, to lift you up. But God ultimately sends trials into our lives so that his son Jesus would be glorified. As God keeps us, as God guards us through trials in the present, it will all result in the future with him being glorified. So that when we make it in the end and we stand before Jesus, having lived through this fallen and broken world, when God is prepared to show us our inheritance and we remember all that we endured to get there, will any of us say, I did it in my own strength? No, we'll remember, Jesus, you kicked the door down every single time and lifted me up and drug me to the next stage of my life. No, when we get there, we won't boast in our own strength. We'll point to a person, to the person sitting on the throne, and we'll say, we went through hell on earth to get here, but we made it through all that hell on earth because of you, Jesus, because you kept us, because you guarded us. All glory to you, Jesus. And when you stand before Jesus on that day, Christian, God the Father just might say to you on that day, hey, because of Jesus, because of my son, you can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory for eternity. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And oh, what a day it will be grace. I cannot wait. Even though we go through hell in this life, there is a day coming when it will end. A day when we will finally see the one we love, the one who is our treasure, our true inheritance. Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
Even though we have never, ever, 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 ever seen Jesus before, we love him. Not in a perfect way. As we saw a few weeks ago, we saw that our love is weak, it's fragile, it's failing. Our love for God is broken. Sometimes it's pathetic. To be honest, most of the time, our love for Jesus is pretty pathetic, isn't it? But we do love him because he'll have us. We love him because he's our savior, our redeemer, our treasure, our inheritance. He is a person that we have never seen and yet we love him. Isn't that amazing? None of us have ever seen Jesus. And we love him. And the world scratches his head and says, you're crazy. You've never seen this person? You're putting all your eggs into that basket? Yes. Because he'll have me. Nobody else will have me. As messy as I am, as screwed up and sinful as I am, he will have me. You betcha. I've never seen him, but if he wants me, I'm on his team. I'm in his family. We don't love him perfectly, Grace, but we do love him even if we've never seen him. And even though we have never, ever, 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 ever seen Jesus, we believe in him because we're a people of faith. Even though we have never, ever, ever seen Jesus, we still rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That means sometimes we're so overwhelmed with the gospel that we can't even put it into words. It's just how grateful we are, how overjoyed we are at how good God has been to us. Sometimes I just say, thank you, Lord. That's all I can say is, thank you, Lord. Thank you. I don't have the words. Well, thank you, do. Sometimes when you realize that your inheritance, your salvation is not dependent on anything that you do, sometimes you can't even take it in. It's glorious, it's, it's weighty, it's heavy, it's inexpressible. Sometimes all you can do is say this, and I say it all the time, I can't believe it, but I believe it. I can't believe it, God, but, but, but I believe it. I cannot believe that you would love me, forgive me, but I can't believe it, but I believe it. Christian, you will obtain the outcome of your faith. Christian, your future is secure. Christian, your inheritance is secure. Christian, you will finally, once and for all, forever, for all of eternity, be freed from sin, freed from this broken world. Christian, you will get your inheritance one day. Christian, you will make it through whatever hell you may experience in this world. Because of Jesus. Christian, because of Jesus, you can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, indescribable, hard to put into words, and filled with the weightiness and the heaviness of the gospel. You should get used to rejoicing with a joy that is inexpressible and hard to put into words. You should get used to rejoicing with this glorious kind of rejoicing because that's what you're going to be doing for eternity. You will finally have Jesus, your inheritance, your treasure, your joy, your delight. You don't have to wear masks to secure his love, his favor. You don't have to pretend for him. You don't have to perform for him. There's no need to worry or try to manipulate him. You will not be written out of the will, Christian. You have the inheritance. You have Jesus, a person. And that ought to be enough to tide you over until then. And in his grace, God gave us a picture to impress this truth upon us because he knows that we're so weak. So the Lord's table is a sign and seal. It's a sign pointing to what Jesus has done for us to secure our inheritance. And it's a seal 
that he uses to impress his promises upon our heart. Like a seal would be put on a letter a long time ago and they would put the king's seal on it. The Lord's Supper is a seal where God impresses his promises upon our heart. In these elements of communion, as we come to the Lord's table, we come to feast on the gospel and to get strength for the journey, strength to make it through the various trials that we go through as we make our way to our our inheritance, our inheritance that is in the city of God, our inheritance who is Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you that for many people here, you have caused us to be born again according to your great mercy. Because of your son, Jesus, our eternal security is ours. Even now, even though we don't have it, possess it, see it already, it's ours. There are some here that don't know you, Father. I pray that the Holy Spirit would come and resurrect the spiritually dead this morning, that they would turn from their sins and trust in your son, Jesus. God, give us strength through these elements to make it on our journey, to make it through hell on earth until we get to heaven on earth to be with you forever. Would you do it all so that on that day we would look back and say that we made it because of Jesus and then may he be glorified then as he is glorified in our lives even now. In his name we pray, amen.